Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Sophia Ramos. In this episode, Philip Hollingsworth speaks with Assistant Professor of Asian Studies, Ufa Bergeton. In their conversation, Professor Bergeton discusses his research as a linguist focusing on ancient China's intellectual history and culture. Can you tell the audience a little bit about your research in general and what, what, you, um, what you focus on? Yeah, so I guess a simple way to put it is that I'm interested in intellectual history and I approach that as a linguist through meaning changes in words. And my period is the early China. The period from before 221, before the Common Era, is my main focus. Okay. So that's, that's basically what I do. How would you define intellectual history, McKinley? Well, for, there are different ways of approaching that, and um, I guess different definitions. Um, what I would say is the change of ideas, mm-hmm. the introduction of new ideas, changes in the way people conceive of the world. So people sometimes use the word epistemic changes, right? Changes right. in worldview. So that's intellectual history writ large, I guess. That would be my definition of it. And you're a linguist as well, and you study early China. What, how, what led you to that, that field of study? Well, I, it's a long story. I guess I, I started out in my study years as a studying linguistics as a linguistics major uh-huh. uh, in Denmark and then in France, and then I applied to go to graduate school in the United States, and I switched from phonology to syntax, um, which I probably shouldn't have done. Um, but then uh, phonology, you can actually do exhaustive um, searches of all the words in the, in the lexicon uh-huh. and to check out a paradigm of verbs and see what morphological issues are related. So it's easier to come to get a complete picture of what's going on in the mm-hmm. morphology and phonology of the language. In syntax, it's more open-ended and you rely on native speaker intuitions. Oh, okay. Um, and the theory becomes more unwieldy. So... Um, well, I decided to change because of schools in linguistics at that time. And then I, um, when I was doing linguistics, I got interested in studying Chinese and more and more so. So it snowballed to the point that when I was about to finish my linguistics degree, I was more interested in, um, in early Chinese history and okay. the texts themselves. Uh-huh. Um, so I finished my PhD in linguistics and then I did another one. So that kind of is a long story of why I do intellectual history as a linguist because I have that background. And um, I was kind of inspired to do it also by the kind of um, intellectual history articles that you see in, well, my field is early China. And people use English to write about civilization and about war. And they use English words like civilization and war. And those words, of course, refer to modern European or modern English Anglophone concepts, ideas of civilization and war. So I wanted to dig into the nuts and bolts of what do people, what did people in China 3,000 years ago to down to 2,200 years ago, what did they have in their minds when they used words in their own language that we now translate into English as war and civilization? Yeah. So that was kind of the starting point for, for my first book project um, on, on civilizational consciousness, words for ideas like civilization and also... I'm using that same method and approach to intellectual history in my second project, which I'm working on now as a fellow. Yeah, can you describe that for the audience? Sure. So um, basically, just like my first project on civilization, I 
realize people use the word war to talk about, well, the period that I'm interested in is also called the Warring States period. Uh-huh. And that is from around 500 BCE down to around 200 BCE, three centuries. Pretty much the same as the classical period in Greek intellectual history. Yeah. Um, period of people like Socrates and Plato. In China, it would be the people like Confucius and Mencius and philosophers like that. So this current project um, is interest. Uh, I'm interested in the in the concept of war mm-hmm. and how people thought of uh, sanctioned violence, not to use the term war, um, in the text we have from that period, uh, from around 3,000 years ago to around 2,200 years ago. And there's a big ch- shift um, before the Warring States period, mm-hmm. um, kind of kind of ironically or maybe very tellingly, I think that people, uh, based on the text we have, didn't really have a word that we can kind of translate as the English word war. Yeah. Um, if we mean something like declared hostilities between states, because they didn't really have a firm, they had words, they had states and state formations, but they were not fully kind of big bureaucratic states as we think of now. Um, so they didn't really have the same vocabulary of statehood and also didn't have the same vocabulary of war. Um, so before the Warring States period, um, conceptually, when people went into kind of battle, yeah. they were thinking of finding sacrificial victims to appease the gods or maybe to punish other peoples or other groups for their actions. Mm. So, so it wasn't necessarily about like mm-hmm. land acquisition and conquest or... Well, or would it be sometimes? That would be dominance of, uh, basically, if you go back to like 3,000 years ago, mm-hmm. the worldview of the dominant dynasty at the time, if you want to call it a dynasty, the Shang dynasty, Okay. Um, they thought of the world as a square. So you have the Shang center. Yeah. And basically, the Shang city was the size of Chapel Hill, or basically UNC. Yeah. That was the biggest city in the world at the time. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, maybe a little more than 100,000. I forgot exactly the number of inhabitants, but a small area like that with mm-hmm. a few hundred thousand people at most. And then outside the, the fortified city that was walled off, mm-hmm. um, you had uh, farmland. And then further away, you had uncultivated forest and things like that. And then maybe further away, you would have another center another fortified city of some other group okay so so it wouldn't really be what you think of today as like in, if you look at a map of europe where you have france and then you have um uh, germany and uh, yeah. Holland and all these and there are firm boundaries for frontiers in between the, the countries mm-hmm. it wasn't like that it was more like these centers so yeah it was about culture i mean basically a lot of these centers had too much land so mm-hmm. what was more important was people Okay. We wanted more people to actually cultivate and kind of cut down the forest and yeah. then grow stuff. Yeah. So people were more important than land. Got it. So um, they were they were looking for yeah. people to work the land and populate. Later on in the Warring States cities. period, you also want to conquer land and the people on the land. Like okay. if it's already yeah. cultivated and you have farmers there, then you can tax those people, and that would be something that wars would be fought over. That's interesting because I studied Latin America uh, post-independence mm-hmm. and during the turn of the 20th century, and that was one of the big things in like Argentina was we don't have enough people here, and they were just yeah. had these, I mean, they did it in different ways with mm-hmm. these wide-open mm-hmm. immigration policies. Yes. So, yeah, well, that's <laughs> another thing that characterizes my work, uh, especially my, my first book where I have a chapter on the word civilization in English oh, okay. and how, yeah. how that changes meaning over time. So words are not stable, right, over mm-hmm. time. So I've used this example a lot, a word like culture, yeah. uh, like 500 years ago in, in Shakespeare's time, 
didn't mean what we think of now as a set of conventionalized behaviors and values and things like that. Yeah. Uh, it was used to just to refer to growing crops. Oh, so okay. there wasn't a word for culture as we think of it now. So people didn't really have a, a kind of ready-made, pre-packaged um, chunk of perceived reality that they yeah. had labeled culture mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that we have now. Later on, that grew out of like cultivating the body, cultivating the mind, and then mm. the set of beliefs and values that you use to cultivate oh. your mind. Yeah. So then that's by... So it was almost started, it went from the uh, agricultural thing yes. to a metaphor to yes. our concept of culture now. So meaning, words change meaning over time. So I look at words that yeah. now in, in early Chinese text, in the text mm-hmm. from my period, that uh, people translate as war. or and, and then I look at the history of them. So some of these words... To give you an example, there is a word uh, in modern Chinese, it's pronounced bing, and mm-hmm. it looks, uh, the graph that writes this word looked like an X. Later on, it comes to mean a war X as well. Oh, okay. First it was kind of an, a, an, an implement to cut down trees, and okay. you can cut down yeah. enemies with an X. And then by extension, you can ask somebody, how many Xs do you have in your army? Meaning, how many soldiers do you have? Right. So then later on, it came to mean weapons, uh, wep- from weapons to troops. Uh-huh. And then from troops to things related to military things. Yeah. So there's a very famous book on war, probably the most famous book on war from China, The Art of War by Sun Tzu. Yes. And people read it to this day in business schools <laughs> and, right. Um, right, right. at um, West Point, etc. Uh-huh. It's a pretty good book. And it's titled Bing Fa. It uses this word, Bing. And um, that's how people, Bing is usually translated as war, and Fa means method, so okay. war method or the yeah. art of war. But at the time when this text was probably composed in the Warring States period, I would say, people debate if it's late spring and autumn period or in the Warring States period. I think it's a bit later. But um, but the word being at that time hadn't was just about to begin to acquire the meaning troops. And okay. it didn't really, wasn't used very frequently in the early Warring States period to refer to war. Uh, like so so the act. translation of this title should actually be something like methods for controlling troops oh, okay. rather than the art of war. Uh, so that's just one example of how, I mean, how conceptual history is important yeah. to look at how words change meaning over time from X to weapon to troops to war yeah. over a period of 700 years. So do you think some of that in the, the case of the art of war is mm-hmm. some of that, I know it would be a cultural dissonance, but also when was the first English translation or Western translation mm-hmm. of that book that might, does that affect it? Well, yeah, I, that's a different side of the story, yeah, right? Yeah, I guess um, so. So, yeah. I'm, I mean, my main work is focusing on the early Chinese texts. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And um, there is also the issue of people in China, mm-hmm. when they read Chinese texts from 3,000 years ago, oh, 2,000 yeah, yeah. years ago, some of the graphs haven't changed much, okay. the way that the words actually are written, mm-hmm. but the meanings have changed. Uh, okay, so, I there see. are lots of anachronistic readings of later meanings down into kind of the I ancient see. past. So that's one thing that I'm more interested in. But then mm-hmm. there's another layer of yeah, confusion yeah, yeah. that's introduced with <laughs> translating into a different language. Got, yeah, that's And of course, it's almost impossible to find exact matches between a word that was used mm-hmm. by people in China more than 2,500 years ago and a modern English word. So especially right. when it comes to con- complex concepts like war and civility and culture, etc. So... How do you make the decisions to follow, say, the word like being, mm-hmm. is it a, a real common word that you mm-hmm. kind of notice the, like, when do you know there's mm-hmm. that word, a particular word that I need to follow? Well, there is no rule for that. You can pick any word. Yeah. But, I mean, if you just take a, 
plain old noun, right? Oh, right, right. Tree or something like that. Uh-huh. I mean, it may not change that much mm-hmm. um, because, well, it could refer to different trees and different uh, animals and stuff like that. So, of course, complex concepts that are related um, to, that you can relate to a group of people who need to talk about a new concept. Mm-hmm. So that's, um, there is, yeah, well, and also it should be, it's important to say that when I do works like I studied, like in my first book, um, concepts related to culture and civili- civility and civilization, I'm not limiting myself just to one or two words. Right, yeah. I look at sometimes dozens of words. Mm-hmm. Um, in the case of war, um, also, well, there are four or five different words in old Chinese yeah. that has been translated okay. as war. And um, there are also other things like um, uh, like the word for peace uh, yeah. was introduced at a certain point because um, that can indicate um, a change in the meaning uh, of the word um, for war. So it's a whole cluster of words that go together to illustrate a certain certain topic. So I, how do you pick a topic? I guess it's like any kind of research, right? But how do you end up studying that little thing that you're interested in? I guess there are all kinds of reasons. One thing that I can say is that um, I was also inspired by lexicographers, linguists from the 19th century. Okay. In the field of linguistics, um, it's, it, it's becoming fashionable again now to study um, lexical semantics, the change of meanings in words. Mm-hmm. But the heyday, the first time, time this um, field of linguistics, the study of meanings of words, was really flourishing, was in the 19th century, when uh, big dictionaries like the Oxford English Dictionary and all the European countries wanted yeah. their own dictionary right, because right, it was right. the beginning of nationalism. They wanted their own consolidating their national language. Yep. So you had tons of people studying words. And some of these, also, some of these linguists also came up with this idea of studying kind of intellectual history through words. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of them came up with this idea that there were always a handful of words in each language that are important to kind of, to to tell something deep about, um, well, about a group of people, let's put yeah. it that way. Yeah, that's great. Um, this is a question we ask everyone we interview. What's a book that changed your life? One book that changed my life? I'm or not sure if book. there's just one book. Um, so there never is, but um, <laughs> we'll just talk question. about one. There are so many. Yeah, <laughs> I guess we have to talk about one. Well, let me take it in this way. Maybe I will say, although I'm not Christian, or well, mm-hmm. I grew up Christian, I, I think the Bible was very important yeah. for me. Great, um, and um, not in the sense that most people would think in terms of faith. And uh, it's actually completely different. It was as a linguist. Okay, I discovered that I was a linguist by reading the Bible, and one of the reasons was that we had a neighbor who was a Jehovah's Witness, Okay. and um, he always came and he wanted to sell his magazines and stuff like that. I, my parents were not interested in it, I was not interested mm-hmm. in it. But I started learning languages um, early on in, in high school, and even earlier than that I was good at languages, and I wanted to learn more languages in high school. I took like classes after school, learning modern Greek and okay. Italian and stuff yeah. like that. I, wanted, I started teaching myself ancient Greek, yeah. because I'd taken modern Greek just on a whim. Um, and then I realized ancient Greek, well, the New Testament is written in, in, in ancient, well, in Koine Greek, not in classical Greek. Yeah. And um, then I got a copy of the New Testament in the classical language and started reading it And um, after teaching myself some classical Greek. And then I thought, hmm, the Old Testament is written in a different language. It's written in Hebrew. <laughs> so right. I started learning Hebrew as a linguist. Uh-huh. And uh, the good thing about using the Bible as a textbook, as I guess, as somebody who's interested in the history of the language and the structure of the language, is that uh, you have very good commentaries on the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them are written in German. 
Okay. Um, and uh, living in Denmark, uh, I had German high school, so I got these cribs to the to the Old Testament and the New Testament, and uh, started working my way through that. And that kind of made me interested in language, but not just language per se, but also ancient languages. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is why I switched from linguistics from my first PhD. Mm-hmm. When I went to China, I started reading. I started. I went to, to Taiwan for one year as a PhD student in linguistics, and then I wanted. To, then I realized that the classical uh, texts are written in graphs that are still look the same as modern Chinese, mm-hmm. and then I gravitated towards that. So I think the Bible has been very important as a linguist. <laughs> that's great. Not in terms of faith, but in terms of um, studying classical languages. Yeah, that's amazing. That's great. That's perfect. So I just want to clarify. You said you went for another PhD, so you have yes. two? Yes, I do have two. The first one is in linguistics. Uh-huh. Um, I got a degree in linguistics from the University of Southern California, USC. Yeah. Um, the reason I went there was that I was, in, I, w- I was born in Denmark and went to college there for two years. And then I lived in France for three years and I got a degree in linguistics from the University of Paris 7. Um, in, uh, and then um, I, at that time it was difficult to get funding to do a PhD in France. So I applied mm-hmm. to go to the United States. That's why I changed from phonology to syntax because okay. of fields in, the, in linguistics. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so that's what I did for my first PhD. I was um, I wrote a, uh, my dissertation on reflexive pronouns, mm-hmm. um, more specifically the English word himself, but also okay. Danish reflexive pronouns, French reflexive pronouns, wow. Chinese, and not just to study those languages, but to come up with a new theory of reflexivity in language and how reflexive pronouns work in languages universally. Mm-hmm. And um, I was doing linguistics in the Chomskyan paradigm, so kind of formal syntax. Yeah. And um, criticizing some of his earlier theories, of, which is called binding theory, and then coming up with a new theory for reflexive pronouns. Mm-hmm. And then I went to Taiwan on a whim just to learn Chinese for a year. Okay. Um, because I was, I was in, I was in kind of in a crisis in my program. I was yeah. overworked as a TA. I was teaching French in the French department. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and it was a lot of work, so mm-hmm. I took a break and uh, just went to Taiwan for a year. And then I came back and continued with my PhD. And then um, realizing that I was more interested in that, switched. But wow. rather than just giving up my PhD, I finished it and defended it and got the degree. And then I got admitted to another program at the University of Michigan uh-huh. in early Chinese history. And uh, well, so that's why wow, I have two, that's amazing. two degrees. Wow, that's great. Well, thank you very much for your time. Well, you're welcome. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for yeah. having me. Yeah, no problem. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.